0: listener-supported WNYC Studios. I so much wanted to be a big, strong guy. I think what the real lure for me was this this idea of being self-sufficient, that I wouldn't need anyone else's care or protection. I wanted to be that powerful. This
1: is Death, Sex, and Money the show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. Can we talk about menopause? Yeah, let's do it. Alison Bechtel went through menopause 10 years ago when she was 50. I only know this because she writes about it in her latest graphic memoir, called The Secret to Superhuman Strength. It's a book all about her outer physical life and her inner emotional life and the things she's noticed about getting older.
0: I'm starting to, like, skip more and more periods as time went on until I didn't have any more. It's weird because you can't know when your last one is going to be. Hmm. You, you don't know technically until a year. It's been a year since you've had a period. So... Uh, there was just this kind of sort of limbo period when you don't know what's happening. And for me, that coincided with uh, a lot of hot flashes, but worse than the hot flashes, um, just uh, kind of, I just felt crazy. I never had terrible uh, PMS, but it was kind of like having really bad PMS for extended periods I just know I felt nuts.
1: Were there moments where you were like, can I trust this emotional reaction? Or is this
0: because yes. my hormones yes. are haywire? I, yeah, I, I would overreact to things. Um, you know, another a, a symptom that I would have when I was younger and, and I would have PMS would just be this feeling of self-loathing. It was usually pretty brief, but that came to really inhabit me for like almost constantly mm. during that period. And it was awful Hmm. how long did that last you know at at least a solid year i would say although it's it's hard to remember all that stuff Hmm. i just want to say how refreshing it is to be invited to talk about menopause because really honestly nobody wants to hear about it i have found except women who are actually in the throes of it no one else wants to know even, even, you know, even after women are through with it, they don't want to talk about it anymore.
1: <laughs> They're done with it. They just want to move on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> don't ask me about that period of life. <laughs> Allison is 60 now, and in the decades since she went through menopause, a lot has happened in her life. Her award-winning graphic memoir, Fun Home, about growing up in her family's funeral home and her father's eventual death from an apparent suicide— became a Tony Award-winning musical. Allison married her partner Holly, an artist who collaborates with her on her work. And Allison lost her mom Helen to colon cancer. She died in 2013, seven years after being diagnosed.
0: I found out that she had stage three colon cancer the day I got home from my book tour for my book Fun Home, a book in which I aired all of my family's dirty laundry. These were big family secrets that people didn't know about. And I had, you know, told my mother I was doing this and we had discussed it and I'd shown it to her as it evolved. But still, it was hard for her when the book, when that book actually came out. Um, so it was very strange. I knew she had a um, a polyp on her colon and she was going to have it removed while I was on my book tour and I talked to her every day on my book tour, checking in with her, and she never told me about the um, the diagnosis. I, I finally asked her when I got home, you know, did you get the biopsy results? And she said, oh, yeah, they. I've known for a few days. I didn't want to tell you when you were on your book tour, but I have cancer. So, I i mean, I, I know this is very narcissistic of me, but I immediately felt like, oh, my God, I'm killing my mother by engaging in these, you know, by writing this book about my father, I am somehow killing my mother, too. Oh. Um, I know that's not really true, but. Did you tell her you felt that way? That you feared that? No. No, I did not. Were you all close? We were close in a certain way. Other people with more um, conventional kinds of relationships might look at the relationship between my mother and me and think that we were insanely remote. Hmm. Um, But we talked about writing. She was a writer. She taught high school English and had always wanted to be a writer. And now here I was actually out in the world. As a writer, mm-hmm. um, I feel like we really had a an understanding. Neither of us is really fully present. We're both standing back. We're both looking at what's happening,
1: hmm.
0: and you know, processing it through all these layers.
1: Because you're both writers, you're noticing what it's like to be together and observing it, as opposed to being together.
0: Yes, and you know, to me, that seems like a pretty good trade-off.
1: And you said you used an interesting word you said for for someone um with a more conventional relationship to a parent, it would look like you weren't close. Uh, w- what what do you imagine is a conventional relationship with a parent that would look closer?
0: Oh, I just think of people who um hug their <laughs> their family members. We never ever touched one another. <laughs> Uh, you know, it didn't even look like we were paying attention. I mean, I paid a lot of attention to my mother, but in some ways, she didn't really ever show much interest in my life. You know, so I think she might have looked a little cold in that way. She was in treatment for
1: for quite a while. She lived she lived after her diagnosis, of course. What what was it? What were your interactions like when she was in treatment? When she was in chemo? When you would be with her?
0: You know it was very hard for her to be ill. she She would be horrified if she knew I was talking about this mm. on the radio um, because she didn't tell her friends, oh, really. I mean, I would argue with her mom. They just want to help you. they They can give you support, and she would insist that she didn't need any support, and people would just feel sorry for her and they'd they'd bring her pudding. Think that they were doing something great, and she, she just very much didn't want to be perceived as weak or debilitated in any way. Did you and your mother discuss her death? Um, we didn't really, but I'm so grateful to her oncologist for how extremely direct he was. She she had been. Sick and clearly failing, and we, we went to meet with him and um me me and my mother and my my mom's partner, Bob, all went to see the oncologist, and Bob had been researching all these possible um, things that might be going on for her and possible treatments that might help. And the oncologist just looked at us and said, You know what? No, this is the end. That directness was such a gift. Uh, The one thing we did talk about was right after that, when I was taking her from his office to the hospital, I just said, well, he didn't pull any punches. And my mother said, nope. And that was pretty much the extent of our exchange about her actual, you know, her actual death.
1: I saw in her obituary that up almost to the very end of her life, she was swimming 60 laps a day. Is that right?
0: Yeah. My mom was a real, um, she loved swimming. She went for the Y every day until she got too sick. It's so funny, Anna. I've, I've got a lot of her old date books here and I've, I've looked through them every now and then, and they have her workouts listed. You know, how many laps she did this day or how much time she spent on the Stairmaster. And we didn't, I, I was, it, it was, startling to see that because i do that same thing in my date book but we never talked about that huh. it was just like we have this same weird behavioral tick i mean I, I guess it's not that unusual to keep track of one's workouts but it was just you know startling and moving to see all of her notes and and, and to realize you know i mean i know that exercise was important to her and made her happy but in the end we all die my mother has gone All her workouts, for what? I'm still grappling with this, as you can see.
1: Mortality, in all the ways Allison has tried to ward it off through exercise, is at the heart of her new book. The specific types of fitness she's been drawn to over the years have jumped around a lot, from martial arts to yoga to running. But what hasn't changed is her dedication to it. Exercise has been a consistent part of her life for years.
0: You know, a, a workout is like a demonstrable accomplishment. I, I get, <laughs> I can't point every day to some creative feat that I've achieved, but I can say, yes, I ran four miles today. So I allow myself to have that small pleasure.
1: Can you describe for me yourself when you're a little, when you're a child and you realize? that you want to be strong. Um, (laughs) When you pictured the kind of body you wanted to build, you wanted to make for yourself through exercise, what did you picture?
0: Well, I, like many children, read comic books and saw those endless Charles Atlas ads of the big bully kicking a little skinny guy on the beach. And I saw those pictures of the bodybuilder guys and I, like that, charles atlas picture i mean i didn't really think of him as a guy i didn't really think of that muscular body as a male body i I just thought i want to look like that or maybe there was some gender uh displacement going on for me as a small girl but it didn't seem uh inconsistent that i could be big and strong like that and i was so tempted by those ads um and for me, as a kid, it was purely physical. It was about just being big and having these big bulging muscles.
1: When you would exercise, would you do it in private when you would try to get be, be trying to get strong or or did you do it out in the open with your family watching?
0: Um, I did it in the open uh, I, I started exercising sort of consciously as a teenager I began running and I also discovered this book of my mom's. Called the joy of feeling fit it was one of those. Huh. Um, uh, it was like by some celebrity trainer, and I I started doing the exercises in this book, and I would do them. Yeah, I I, I didn't hide it. I would do them in the kitchen or the living room. Mm-hmm. Um, I did for I did for a brief period um, try to rig up a punching bag in the basement after I saw the movie Rocky. <laughs> that was a <laughs> that was a big influence. Um, I, I got a laundry bag and I filled it with pennies and marbles, so it was really heavy. And I padded it around with rags and I hung it in the basement. And I put on my dad's good leather ski gloves and I would practice hitting this punching bag.
1: Oh, <laughs> this is such a beautiful image. And also, <laughs> probably hurt your fingers. Marbles and pennies.
0: <laughs> well, it hurt, it hurt the gloves more than my fingers, alas. How old were you when you did that? I was uh, um I think I had just turned 16. Oh, so you weren't like a
1: child. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I was in 10th grade. Did you um like how when you would look at your body at that time when you're when you are when you're a teenager, um would you how did you think about gender and body image and weight like what were the pressures that you felt when you would look at your body and you knew what you wanted it to look like and then you were looking at what your body did look like
0: you know I've I had many of the typical um kinds of dissonance that girls in this culture do I all I worried that I was too heavy I I I was uncomfortable with my breast and hips. So I, I grew very quickly, like I'd been a very skinny kid and I grew quick um quickly once I hit 13 or 14. I put on a lot of weight and I was very uncomfortable in my body. And I but then as I got as I came out as a lesbian and started becoming a feminist and being exposed to uh all these new ideas, I there was another layer to it, which was I um that these standards for women's bodies were actually trying to make women look more like men. <clears throat> you know, this this leanness and thinness that everyone was aspiring to was a way of making women's bodies look more like men's bodies. So I tried to like eradicate that um, that attitude in myself. But I I feel like that for me there was another thing going on, which was really that I I I didn't quite. Um, I don't identify as trans at all, but I but maybe I'm a little bit like I can really understand how you can have can just feel a, a dissonance with your the body that you have. And I realized that um my own weightlifting was probably was an attempt to have a more it was an attempt to have a more masculine, less curvy looking body. And I, I feel like I've I've embraced this idea that I'm a I'm a masculine woman. I, I feel fine, you know, being a woman. But I also <laughs> like having a I like having a more masculine appearance. Um, that's just the kind of kind of girl I am.
1: Coming up, I talk with Allison about three decades of going to therapy which started not long after her father was hit by a truck and
0: killed. It was that evening that my mother said to me, "You know, I think that it was on purpose, I think. I think he stepped in front of that truck." And as soon as she said that, I that made perfect sense and I've never questioned it.
1: Get signed up for the weekly Death, Sex, and Money newsletter. Get yourself to deathsexmoney.org and sign up. Every Wednesday morning, we send out a newsletter that honestly we spend way too much time on, but it is full of lots of really great stuff, including letters from other listeners, audio recommendations of other things you should listen to, and updates from our past guests. Like, if you listen to our episode about high school sweethearts Marcy and Joe, who reunited by phone after 50 years during the pandemic but had never met in person, there are new developments. We shared them in last week's newsletter. Marcy wrote to us that they met up in a park and quote, we are moving very slowly and that feels perfect. So if you don't want to miss any more updates like this one, sign up. Our newsletter is also where we shared reactions to our episode with former rock climber Mason Earle. Our listener Faye in Maryland is visually impaired, and she told us that a lot of what Mason said about living with a chronic illness resonated with her, especially when it comes to relationships. I really fear the idea that
0: my partner might meet me one way, and then my eyesight could get dramatically worse than it is now, and they have to get used to a partner that they did not initially um, fall in love with, you know what I mean? They're signing up for potentially a huge change in our relationship dynamic, and I'm fearful of that.
1: Again, sign up at depthsexmoney.org to get that newsletter. One other thing I do from time to time in the newsletter is I write about what I'm reading and watching. One new TV show that I am really excited to stream soon is called Spotting. It's a TV adaptation of a movie that came out a few years back about Oakland, police, and gentrification. And on our next episode, we're going to revisit our death, sex, and money conversation with Rafael Casal, the creator and star of both Blind Spotting, the film and the TV show. I was out on maternity leave when Rafael was on the show, but we had an incredible guest host actor Mahershala Ali.
0: What scares you uh, about the next three to five years?
1: I I just don't know what I'm doing. I say this thing all the time that I keep getting through another door, and I keep thinking that the adults are in that room, Mm. and then I get in there and it's just me and my friends. Mm -hmm. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Allison Bechtel's father died when she was 19 years old. It was 1980, and months before, Allison had come out to her parents. Her mom then revealed to her that her dad had had affairs with men. And soon after, Allison's mom asked her dad for a divorce. Allison says he started behaving erratically and then was hit by a truck. Allison drove home from college to be with her mom who told her she believed it was a suicide.
0: I was the only person, I think, that she told. I know she didn't tell her best friend. She might have told her sister, I'm not sure. But no, she kept everything very much under wraps. When did you start therapy? I started therapy when I was 26, following a very brief but quite... Uh, disturbing period of depression hmm.
1: for you, when you think about what therapy in particular why it's been helpful to you, what would you say?
0: well, because of the strange environment I grew up in with with my parents having you know maintaining this big, quite elaborate secret all the time um I I just never learned how to be emotionally present. So one of the first things my therapist said to me, um, I told her, you know, oh, my dad killed himself. Uh, Maybe I'm having some kind of reaction to that. She said, well, did you ever feel angry at your father for killing himself? And I was like, what are you even talking about? anger why would I feel anger but as soon as she said that I could feel um something start to change and I I just learned how to have feelings It, it took um you know it took many years but I learned that it was okay to have these feelings that I had been keeping at bay my whole life right around that time I started studying yoga I had stopped doing martial arts a few years earlier and was moving into yoga so at the same time i was doing this intensive work in therapy i was learning to pay attention to my body in a really different way than i had done in in karate Hmm. Um, yoga was all about looking in and not out you know in karate we were always braced for attack (laughs) (laughs) and in yoga i realized that i was grappling with my my own self in a straight deep interior way. And how is
1: how is pain treated in yoga versus martial arts? How did you think about it differently?
0: Well, I learned in yoga to observe the pain. Um, you know, rather than, than just label it pain and and recoil from it, really pay attention to how it feels. It's not if you if you examine it closely it's there's a it's a tingling or a pulsing or a you know there's all these kinds of sensations that you can notice when you when you don't just call it pain and resist it so and that of course you know had an an emotional analog and i was learning to do that with my feelings as well but but having that grounding in the body Helped with that. The the yoga and the therapy were very um, beneficial to one another.
1: Yoga eventually fell away in Allison's life. But she stayed in therapy for 30 more years. As she ended one romantic relationship, began another with her partner Holly, and tried to figure out her complicated relationship to her work, too.
0: I always just kind of automatically reflexively prioritized my work over everything else, including my my partners. My therapist would just like throw up her hands when I would talk about how my my work is my life. I would try to explain to her, you know, I'm a I'm a memoirist. I this is what I do. And she would say, It's not it's it's what you do, it's not who you are. And I really had a very difficult time understanding the difference. So when I met Holly, who told me she was polyamorous, I was very curious about that because it finally, it might, maybe it would be okay that my priority was my work.
1: Is that, did that give you a sense of permission to like really just say out loud, you are not my only priority, work is also my priority? Is that something you could admit in previous relationships or did it feel shameful?
0: No, it always felt shameful and wrong. Um, and you know honestly it didn't work out that way <laughs> with with holly when it when it was okay to finally um admit that i that's when i i feel like i started slowly beginning to understand that my work is really not the most important thing it is very important but it's not you know my work was not meeting certain very Basic needs. Whenever I would finish a, a big project or a deadline, I would have these abysmal periods of just feeling really lost. And I, I know that's because the work isn't life. You no, know, I needed to engage with with life in those moments.
1: What was? How did you start to understand it? What 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 shifted in how you understood the limits of work?
0: I, I would notice that I'm I'm spending all my time working. I'm trying to write about my life, but I have less and less material to draw on the more time <laughs> I spend sitting here on my computer or at my drawing board. It, you know, that's just a sort of mathematical reality. You know, I haven't, I wouldn't say I've really cracked this nut, but I do feel like I've made a lot of progress and that I'm, I'm much more likely to stop working at the end of the day and not keep working into the evening or stay up late. I'm able to have weekends when I don't work at all. You know, it's actually better for the work. That's how I rationalize it in my crazed workaholic brain. If I take time off, then I'm fresher on Monday.
1: Yeah. And you're also secretly working because you're creating content for your work.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Another issue that came up over and over again for Allison in therapy was alcohol. She started drinking more in her 30s, around the same time that a knee injury put a stop to her running.
0: I started drinking in, a, in an increasingly habitual manner until I got to the point in in my early 50s that I, I just had to have the drink, multiple drinks. Uh, I had to like drink with dinner and I would often keep drinking throughout the rest of the evening and it was I, I, I kept trying to tell myself oh it's fine I'm i am still productive I'm it's not like I'm getting wasted and just trying to relax but I, I drank the way I learned to drink in my family my parents drank um, with dinner or had had a cocktail and then had beer or wine with dinner and I I was replicating that pattern but for the same reason too they that was how they managed their tension uh, and that's how I learned to manage my tension mm. <laughs> weirdly I the my my finally being able to stop drinking happened at the same time that I quit therapy after like well with this particular therapist it had been almost 20 years so she <laughs> she was actually sort of um she found that a very interesting coincidence. Huh. Oh, sir. She had a funny theory about it. I'm sure it was absolutely right. She would talk about how I always wanted to do everything myself. Like, I couldn't really let her help me. Oh, so that's interesting. Was, <laughs> yeah. Only when I was winding down and ready to leave could I stop drinking because I had to do it myself.
1: Does that feel true? Yes. How did you know you were ready to stop? therapy
0: um, I just I, I realized I was sort of looking at the clock not with anxiety that the time was going too quickly but that it was going too slowly. How did you end it?
1: like how did you bring up that you thought you might be ready to leave?
0: Well, she had a whole routine like we it took we spent a full year continuing to see each other after deciding that it was time to end um <laughs> some people are I'm sure rolling their eyes like who would go along with that but I I like that plan huh
1: it's sort of like knowing you're getting to the senior year of high school and then you have all of the milestones of the senior year of high school so you're really relishing yes. that last year yeah
0: yeah and it was a way of really processing what we've done together too to really explore all of that
1: You've, you've recently taken back up running. You're, you're running again. You're jogging again for exercise. Yeah, yeah. What did you notice? Can you describe for me what, what felt different doing running for exercising? Like, what did you get from running that other exercising didn't deliver for you?
0: You know, there's something magical that happens in running. I don't know what it is. Um, running is just hard. You're slamming your body into yeah. the ground with every step. And that's what, that's what I think makes it so, um, whatever weird brain chemicals it makes, it comes from that, that impact. It's, it's quite addictive and a, and a, it's a very positive kind of addiction.
1: Are you fearful of what will happen when, what happens to your body and running it, when your body can't tolerate it
0: anymore yeah i am and i know it's inevitable no one keeps running forever um i'm hoping i'm gonna find other ways to maintain my peace of mind before i lose the ability to run you know i ran across a, a, an entry in my teenage diary as i was working on this book and it was addressed to my older self <laughs> it said you better i i was uh, saying I was excited about a run I had just gone on, I was talking about how good I felt, and they said, "You better still be doing this when you're old and gray." Wow.
1: <laughs> I wonder. So your younger self was telling your older self how to take care of your body. Um, if you, if you could give a message to that teenage self about how to take care of your body, what is important about it? Like, what would you what would you tell that person?
0: You know, I, I don't think I would need to tell that person anything. I think she knew very well hmm. what what how to do it. I wish I hadn't spent as many years drinking as I had, but apart from that, I feel like I feel pretty pleased with how I've taken care of my body.
1: That's Alison Bechtel. I love her new book so much. It is called The Secret to Superhuman Strength. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Katie Bishop. The rest of our team includes Affy Yellow Duke, Emily Boutine, Yasmin Khan, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Instagram at Anna picks That's P I C S. And the show is at Death, Sex, Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you to Olivia Dendulk in Grand Rapids, Michigan, who is a sustaining member of Death, Sex, and Money. Join Olivia and support what we do here by going to org slash donate. Allison told me she still does not like to ask for help, even if she's not feeling well. She doesn't like to rely on her wife. But the indignities of aging? That they are happy to discuss together.
0: I might, I might feel more self-conscious if, if she were not having signs herself, but um, we point out stuff all the time we both are have been doing it, looking at our crepey skin, and, and she has this crazy gray eyebrow here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.